Hey, this is Todd Miles. Welcome to another episode of Food Trucks in Babylon, a Western Seminary podcast. Today, Ryan and I are with JT English. He's the pastor of Storyline Fellowship near Denver, Colorado. He was the founder and director of the Village Church Institute at the Village Church, and it gave him some special insight into developing disciples in the local church. We've asked him to come and talk with us about his latest book, Deep Discipleship, where we're going to take a look at why the local church needs to prioritize discipling followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in more than just a superficial manner. So we hope you'll join us. J.T. English, who is a pastor uh, in Denver, Colorado, at a church called Storyline. Uh, just moved there recently, just took over uh, at that church recently, and also from uh, uh, before that, previously, uh, out of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and he is the author of Deep Discipleship. Uh, the subtitle of that is How the Church Can Make Whole Disciples of Jesus. Today we want to talk uh, to JT and with JT about that book, but also more broadly about what it means to be a pastor theologian uh, and how we can be better pastors uh, for God's people. So thanks for being here with us, JT. We got a few questions for you, but thanks so much for joining us. Man, I've been looking forward to this uh, for a while. I'm just honored you guys would have me. I've been a longtime listener, have benefited from the show, so just glad to be in conversation with you guys. That's good. We're glad there's at least one listener out there, that, and that's 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 a benefit. You guys keep going, and I'll 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 do as many I'll give you as many downloads as it takes. I'll just get on all my devices and keep downloading it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this: uh, What was your personal experience of discipleship before you envisioned deep discipleship? I know you go into this in the book, and and your autobiography sounds a l- suspiciously like everybody's autobiography, <laughs> which I think is the main point, but, but but I'll let you expand on that. Yeah, so just just briefly, I grew up really close to where I'm pastoring now in Littleton, Colorado, and didn't know the Lord, just was kind of a post-Christian secular kid. My parents would take me to church occasionally, kind of as the living on the exhaust fumes of a kind of a Christian worldview, because that's what their parents did. And they they were doing their best. They, they, they're great people, but they just a Christian uh, ideal idea was not a part of, of my household. I came to know the Lord while eating a uh, Burger King Whopper in the Colorado State Student Center. A sophomore named Nate Miller sat down with me and just shared the four spiritual laws and in the most uncompelling gospel presentation in the history of the world. Uh, God, God saved me. And it wasn't uncompelling because it was the four spiritual laws. He just didn't make eye contact. So it got really awkward after a while. But the Lord used it to convict me of my sin and show me about the beauty of Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. And so I, you know, I came, became a Christian. I spent a lot of time in campus crusade and was really, really thankful for that. Just uh, found great community, uh, understood about accountability, learned how to share the gospel, but I never really was discipled in the sense of what's the Bible about and who's God. And that it really isn't exactly why crew exists. I'm not criticizing them at all. It was just something I didn't have. So I went to my pastor at the time and just said, Hey, I'd love to to grow in my knowledge of scripture. I'd love to, like, I would, I think right now I would pay $10,000 to have some kid come up to me and say, hey, I'd love to know my Bible better. Like, I don't want to have to convince them. <laughs> you know, I was already convinced of this. And, uh, and he just said, oh, you want to grow? You need to go to seminary for that. 
uh, and he was a good pastor. He's a good man. I actually still know him. He just was operating in this system. I, I really enjoyed my time in seminary. Um, I, I have nothing against seminary at all, but I always go back to that conversation and thinking, why can we not teach people the Bible in the church? Why are there not systems or programs or methods or, or just a culture of biblical and theological formation where we've divorced those things typically from the life of the church and outsourced them, not just to seminaries, but to organizations like BSF or others where if you want to learn, you got to go somewhere else. So I did spent spent about 10 years or so uh, in institutions of higher education, thankful for that time, but then ultimately just felt called to, to go back to the church to try to help us think through this question of how do we make whole disciples uh, in local church contexts? Yeah, how does this play into? So there's there's somewhat of a refrain in your book uh, where you say it's very catchy. Churchless discipleship is aimless discipleship. How does your experience play into coming to grips with that reality and then seeking ways to to address it? Yeah, so I mean, one of my convictions, and I think it's a biblical conviction, is that the church is a family. We're meant to grow alongside each other. Uh, when we grow in other contexts only, again, I'm, I'm in no way suggesting that things like BSF are unhelpful. They're great. Uh, but if, if that's your primary context of growth, in some sense, you're experiencing orphanhood. You're growing as a Christian, but you're not doing it with mom and dad or with siblings. And so the church is meant to be the household of God where we have spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters walking alongside one another. And I believe that that qualitatively changes what you can learn in a church, because all of a sudden, you're not just worried about your own growth like you would perhaps in a seminary class or BSF, but you're worried about the growth of your brothers and sisters or your aunts and uncles, whatever it might be. And so all of a sudden, it isn't just our own growth that matters, but the growth of the whole family. And this is the language. These are similar metaphors that we see in Scripture, building up into a whole temple of God as on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, or Ephesians chapter 4, training the saints for the work of ministry. So um, I just think that—so, that, again, I, I'm not—I'm just some guy. I don't have a unique perspective, but, but my perspective was— uh, I probably would have said this more bluntly uh, five, six years ago. Like, I think we learn in life. We all kind of, at least hopefully, tone ourselves down a little bit. Um, but if I was honest, I was kind of frustrated. Uh, I was frustrated that I didn't see churches doing this, or at least I didn't, I didn't even need them to do it well. I just wanted them to try. Uh, and I had to move my family across the country twice and spend a whole bunch of money just to learn how to be a disciple. Uh, and so, and uh, even to take it one step further, the churches, I, I had a good church experience through seminary, but a lot of the churches that I was trying to participate in almost looked at me suspiciously because I was a seminary student. I don't know if you guys ever had that, but it was kind of like, this guy is probably going to cause problems in my church, or he's going to, you know, tell me that what I just preached was heresy or something. Like that. And there's probably cause for <laughs> concern sometimes with, you know, a first year seminary student sure. that just learned Greek and is yelling at the pastor or something like that. Like, but I was kind of, I felt, I felt like I, I didn't have a home. It's like in the church, they were frustrated with me because I wanted to learn stuff. And then in the, I had to go to seminary because they weren't doing it in the church. So for that 10 years or so, I kind of just felt homeless. And I was just trying to say, guys, I just became a Christian. I would love to learn and grow. And I'm just trying to find the best pathway to do that so that I can serve the church. So if, if maybe I could distill it, I was really frustrated that I had to leave the church in order to learn how to lead in the church. Well, I mean, to, to continue sort of in this 
biographical approach. I, how, how does how does your time so so how does your time you leave seminary and, and you enter into uh, the village church? How does how does the village church change your vision of God? Change your vision of ministry? How does it begin to shape and build into this uh, this vision of deep discipleship? Yeah, uh, part I mean a lot of theology and ministry is is autobiography, and so mm-hmm. part of the village's story matters here too. So just. In 30 seconds or less, the Village Church, you know, church right outside of Dallas, for the listeners who don't know, the lead pastor there is a guy named Matt Chandler. He's been there 17, 18 years now, I think. And for the first 13 or 14 years, they experienced pretty explosive growth that wasn't really intentional. It was just people were getting saved. It was really a renewal. Mm. And they had, you know, 13, 14,000 people coming to their campuses across the city. And they were all just a bunch of, like Matt was 29 when he got there. He didn't have a built out philosophy of ministry. He just had a pronounced preaching gift and that the Holy Spirit used for a while, or it is still using, but I just mean like in that compact, acute season. Um, and their staff was thin. They were, they were running out of gas programs everywhere. And it was a bunch of young kids trying to figure out how to, how to lead and minister to a church. So they adopted a, a philosophy of ministry that can be really helpful. Uh, that was kind of a simple form of ministry. All we're going to do is the Sunday gathering, and then we're going to scatter in home groups. Uh, and for for a season that worked, but the reality was is our home group leaders were exhausted because they because they they then took on all the burdens that the staff were no longer having to take on. They were premarital counselor, and they were divorce care and they were missions guy. And meanwhile, this guy's trying to run his chiropractic business or or whatever it might be. And so, and then the church began responding to our leaders. This is before I got there saying, we want you to train us. We, we don't know our Bibles. We don't know theology. And I love preaching, but a 35 minute sermon a week, isn't going to do it. It's just not even going to come close to doing it. That's not a low view of God's word. And that's not a low view of preaching. It's just, we also need a higher view of the church. And so they then realized we need to, to develop some kind of a learning environment. And that's when I got connected with them and just in God's providence, got to spend the last six years there and just loved it. So we founded what was called the Village Church Institute, where we said that there are three primary strands to discipleship. We think people need to know their Bibles, the basics of theology, and the basics of spiritual discipline. And we sequenced that education for more mature believers or less mature believers. So we, the kind of the colloquial language we would use is we want we want to take a pagan and have a pipeline where we could make him a pastor and everything in between. So we didn't want to overlook the, like we weren't just a in-house seminary for people who wanted to learn or read Augustine or Calvin or Edwards, whatever we, we wanted to, I mean, like what's funny about this is when people think about the Institute, they think seminary light, probably a lot of Bible nerds, but most of our students were like 55 year old uh, women who had never had access to theological education before because their church didn't think they could do it. I'm grading right, right before I hopped on the podcast, I have 85 doctrinal statements that I'm grading from the Storyline Institute right now. And these doctrinal statements are unbelievable. Like the one that I just graded, uh, I had them write on three doctrines. They wrote on the doctrine of the Trinity. They wrote on uh, the doctrine of scripture and then creation and providence. And I just got done reading a doctrinal statement, 500 words on God's providence from a widow uh, who I buried her husband last year. He was my first baptism. He then got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, and we buried him. She lives 17 houses down the road from me and we miss her husband, Doug, daily. But to read her words 
about God's sovereign care for her and his providential love for her, even in the midst of suffering and sorrow, is just another reminder that theology and doctrine belongs in the local church. And that's what we saw at the village for six or seven years. We kind of thought this pipeline's going to run out, but it was, it was always, it was the, there was a mom of five. She had five kids. Her husband's a financial planner who, who was our deacon over the Institute for five years, who moved here with our family to be a part of the Storyline Institute because it wasn't the students we were expecting. It was just the everyday Christians who said, give us more of the Bible. We want more. Uh, so you're, you're pastoring Storyline Church in Colorado now. Uh, yep. Why? Uh, outside of divine providence, but... But why leave Village? Well, um, we just said a minute ago that, you know, I'll tell one story and I'll also give like a, a theological why. I, I said a moment ago that a lot of a lot of theology and ministry is based on autobiography. Uh, a big part of what we had shaped at the Village Church was a narrative, kind of a narratival theology. We, we talked about Christian story and all the false stories we live in and how do we live into the Christian story and just the idea, I mean, again, this this sound, almost sounds more pagan than Christian, but like the fact that this place was called Storyline, it was a stone's throw from where I grew up. All the values were, I, I didn't want to come to Storyline because I wanted to change it. I came to Storyline because I wanted to be a part of it. And it was just, a, 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 I just felt like a compelling vision that I wanted to be a part of. But then along the way, there was a few things that happened that just, like here, here's an example. I actually left the, Matt and I had a preaching meeting. Like we were, I was on the preaching team and we were walking through a sermon series and all the texts we were going to preach. And I left, I was walking over to that same Chick-fil-A where we were knowing faith was birthed. Uh, right before I was teaching in the training program, I just needed to grab a quick spicy chicken sandwich. And I have a guy, a guy that I met at Southern Seminary named Corbin Hobbs, who planted a church here in Denver. It's called the Heights Church. Uh, I, Corbin and I, like we're friends, but like, he's not, he, we don't have the kind of friendship where you just pick up the phone and call. Like we had a texting Twitter friendship, if that makes sense. Like good acquaintances, but like, he's not the guy I call. And I, like the Lord didn't say anything to me. He never has in the, in audible sense. Uh, but I just felt like this prompting, uh, call Corbin. And it was one of those where I was like, no, don't call Corbin. And I just kind of felt like, no, call Corbin. So I called him. Uh, and he's like, Hey, JT, you know, it's so strange that you call. Have you ever heard of Storyline Church? And I was like, Oh, you know, like, th like this is two weeks into their pastoral search, and I'm kind of thinking about it, toying around with it. And he's like, This is weird, but I'm actually in the former lead pastor's old office where I'm currently sitting right now. And the Holy Spirit prompted me to pray for you. Uh, I was praying for you. I think you'd be a great lead pastor for this church. And then you called me right then. And wow. that's when I was like, okay, bye. I got to go. Like, hang up the phone and just <laughs> go about your day. But there was just two or three things like that. And I don't mean to like, it's, I, don't, I don't intend for that to sound like mystical or that's how God calls people. Like sometimes you just, you just obey God and do what you want. Uh, but there was just a few things, kind of pebbles along the way where it really just felt like God was prompting, prompting us to do this. And, and we, we've only been confirmed in that since we've been here. Yeah, you go, you obey God, you go to Chick-fil-A and then you do what you want. And those last two I mean, similar, if, so. if, if that's not God's will for our lives, I don't know what is, nor do I know if I want to be a part of it. <laughs> JT, what, what's it like? So, so you moved back close to where, like your hometown. Yeah. Uh, what, what's it like pastoring in your hometown? So, like, did you have a better experience than Jesus in Nazareth? Right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, the Bible says some stuff about this. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. 
that hasn't, I mean, maybe that's been a little bit of my experience, you know, over the last six or seven years, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of soul work, integrated leadership work. Part of that was my time at the village, another guy named Todd Wilson at the center for pastor theologians. And I've been doing some good kind of integrative work and just making sure that I'm a whole person trying to lead whole people. Uh, And he and I were having a conversation a while back because I was expressing to him, like I'm back home, but it's not the same. Like, you know, you go to the, you go to the old grocery store, you go to the Chick-fil-A or whatever it might be. And he said, that's because he said, JT, that's because God brought you home to grow you up. You know, little, little, you were, you were a teenager when you were running around there. And now you hear you are a man of God with kids and it's not meant to be the same, but he's meant he's, you're, you're a part of this growth process too. Cause I think I was thinking to myself, go back to your hometown and raise them up. You know, like you, you, you went on this Augustinian journey for the last 15 years. Now you get to go home and, and raise up and develop people to where you are. And I, that, what a prideful and arrogant way to think. Um, but for them to invite them on the journey that God's had me on the last 15 years and invite them into that process of wholeness and knowing that I'm, I'm still uh, in development and I'm still growing and learning and, and, and working with Jesus and the Holy Spirit to grow into a disciple and so that's that's really been my journey in trying to walk through that vulnerably with my people of just inviting them into what Jesus is doing in my own heart and life. That's that's where I think I've found the most. Uh, um, I'm not even sure the right words there, but just the, the most like sensitivity from the people here where I'm no longer the guy that went off and got seminary degrees. Mm-hmm. I'm the guy who this is home and God's still working on. And that's been uh, it's been, I think, spiritually fruitful for our church and for me as well. Let's transition over to your book uh, just now. Uh, it's called Deep Discipleship. Why do we need an adjective like like that? I mean, isn't it just discipleship? Yeah, not not according to marketers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, you definitely don't. Biblically, you don't need that language. And I, I even kind of wrestled with it a little bit. Hmm. But I was trying to contrast some of the shallow nature of discipleship that we tend to see. Uh, and by that, I even mean some of the marketing of evangelicalism of like, it's all about being relevant, savvy, hip, cool, finding ways to reach people. And, and I'm just trying to tell people like, guys, I was the person you were trying to reach. If you win me with something hip, cool and savvy, that's what you're also going to lose me to. But if you win me with distinctively Christian things, then I'm going to stick around for a while. And so I'm just, I was just trying to tell the, ch- one of the messages of the book was trying to tell the church, like, let's just like. I believe the, I believe I might be getting these numbers slightly wrong. Uh, The new Testament uses the term disciple 269 times, I believe. And it uses the word Christian three times. Mm. And so what does it mean? And again, I'm, I'm happy to call myself a Christian, but Christian tends to be more status. Disciple tends to be more journey process, learner growing, like, and, and inviting people into this idea that yes, we have a status of Christ followers. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. But to be a deep disciple is really actually rooted in the nature and character of God. It's I, I was trying to I was trying to give people a picture of the only reason to be a disciple of Jesus is because God is who He says He is, and He is an inexhaustible wealth of beauty and perfection and goodness and glory. And if you want to be a disciple of His, then the depth is found in knowing Him, and that depth never ends. It's this it's this well that you'll never get to the bottom to, and and certainly. If you're in Christ, you can wait till eternity to start exploring that, even though we're technically in eternity, but you know what I mean? Like we can wait until, until, um, until our eternal lives, but why wouldn't we want to start that now? That deep 
fellowship. Jesus says in John 15, you can do nothing if you're not abiding in me. And that's that's part of the deep language is just inviting into the depth, inviting people into the depths of God now. Um, one of the things, even even through your own biography, that, you, that you're mentioning that there there was that push from from the pastor. Okay, you're basically saying, I want to be discipled, and he says, Oh, well, if you want that, go study theology at at seminary. Um, how would you help people who are still kind of maybe stuck in that system? How would you help them distinguish between what deep discipleship is and sort of this concept of? of discipleship, maybe leaning into just intellectual development, kind of protecting, protecting us from like Jamie Smith's warning that, that, that evangelicalism is, is just, you know, downloading information into a brain on a stick or something along those lines. How, how do you make that distinction? Man, I don't know that I'm the best person to ask this question. I will give an answer, but if, if I'm honest with you, this is something I'm still wrestling with a little bit because as, as you guys know, I mean, in seminary, it really can begin to feel like you're a brain on a stick and, and that the intellectual pursuit and the life of the mind is, is the, is the end of what it means to be a disciple or the telos, the goal. And, and that was kind of how I entered the village church kind of with that tagline. I became a big James K.A. Smith fan, became a big kind of proponent. We actually had people read his book. I remember Matt Chandler led a, like a little group Tony, that Tony Romo was in uh, reading his book, You Are What You Love. And so like, that's, that's all true. And I still ascribe to that. However, I would say uh, that the seminary in the, so seminaries and churches, this might be where they're furthest apart. So because then I enter the church saying that and Jen Wilkin, my friend was the one who really pushed me on this the most. And she said, JT, you don't understand the Bible literacy crisis here. People in the church are being told that they can uh, know or love a God they don't know. Hmm. And you can't love a God you don't know. The problem in the church is not, is not the integratedness of the heart and the soul. It's that they don't know things. And over the course of my time there, that became, I, I, I agreed with her. I think that's increasingly true. The problem of, so you guys have read Mark Knoll's book, his first line, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't one. Mm-hmm. He is right. Like no, no evangelical walks into any room in this country and somebody says, they're the intellectual people. They're the smart ones. <laughs> Smartest you know? guy in the room. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, yet, but yet that's what preaches in churches. And, and I actually think, I think we say it simply because it preaches. I don't think it's true. Last night, I was on campus at a, at a major Christian university here in town, and I did a 20-question Bible literacy quiz. Just the basics. Nobody got above eight answers right. Eight out, eight out of 20. Eight out of 20. Eight out of 20. Whoa. So like, but, so like, so what I would say, and again, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I'm right about this. This is me just kind of exploring a, an, an idea. Here's a message that would preach well in an evangelical church. Uh, you're in real danger of not loving God as much as you can if you grow too heady in the Bible, because if you know the Bible too well, you're going to be like those Pharisees. And nobody wants to be a Pharisee. You don't want to be a Pharisee. Just change your affections for Jesus, you know, something like that. The reality is Jesus never once condemns the Pharisees for their knowledge. He only condemns them for their ignorance. How could you be a teacher of the law and not know these things? So it wasn't that they were prideful about their knowledge. It's that they were prideful about their ignorance. And so I actually think the message needs to change in the evangelical church a little bit uh, or Christian churches. And we need to say, like, I'm here I am ranting a little bit. I was with a pastor the other day who was with, he, he told me a story about being with uh, one of the main leaders of Hezbollah. He wanted to meet with some Christian pastors. And so 
pastor, they were having this interaction. He gets patted down. He's, he's there. He's in Palestine meeting with, meeting with a leader in Hezbollah. And the guy understands himself to be a philosopher. Like, a, I, want to, I want to be a wise person. I want to grow. And so he says to the pastors, would you guys help me? Uh, know what you believe about Jesus, know, know what you believe about the Bible. And so they start telling him, talking to him, kind of turns into a question and answer. And then um, one of the pastors asks him a question. What do you believe about Jesus? And you know what he did? He sang John 1 in Arabic. That guy knows his Bible more than most American evangelicals I know. So I don't know that in the church we have the problem of being heads on a stick. Uh, I do think that's a problem in the academy. Yeah. And so it's almost like we have rival problems mm-hmm. with rival solutions yeah. that somehow need need to be swapped yeah. somehow, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you think, you, would, you, would you argue then that, that the academy and the church are talking past one another? Way past each other. And again, I'm a huge fan of James K. Smith's yeah. work, yeah. but that has not been my experience. It was my experience in the academy. It was not anywhere near my experience in the church. And, and one of the one of the ways that we can guard against that in the life of the church, because I do think there's a, I mean, we've all met that seminary jerk who does know a little too much and enters the life of the church, and you don't want to be around that guy. So a big part of creating discipleship environments in the life of the church, like a, like a classroom or a training program or an institute, is reminding people that the aim of our instruction is love, mm-hmm. charity, that if, if theological knowledge is ever resulting in pridefulness and arrogance, then it's not theological knowledge you have. Knowledge of God results in love mm-hmm. and results in loving God and loving neighbor and making sure that you're guarding that culture really carefully. That's good. So in our tribe, we're kind of allergic to programs, or, or at least we <laughs> say we're allergic to programs. How do you, how do, you do this kind of, of, of uh, discipleship that you're asking for without, without programs? You, you, you say in your book, ministry success is not found in building programs or building disciples, but how do you do one without the other practically? Yeah. So I, I'm not against programs. I understand what you're saying that a lot of churches are, and I, you can certainly build disciples outside of a program. One of the challenges that we're going to face though, specifically uh, in the West is the way that our societies are programmed. Uh, like our, like our kids have programmed soccer games and our kids have programmed recitals and rehearsals and, and those calendars start competing with each other and getting. So, so one of the things that we started advocating for at the village uh, I, I could go through a whole acronym. I'll save you from all the boring nature of it. But two things that I think are really important for pastors to think about is, is providing structured and predictable ministry environments. Home groups are the least structured and least predictable things, which is why people have a hard time committing to them. Because if like we, we keep asking, so one of the things we would talk about at TVC is, is, you know, apologizing to, for asking uh, big commitments from people oh, we're so sorry, we're asking you to come to this four-week class or whatever it might be. And the reality is, like, people want to make big commitments. They will drink kale smoothies, for the Lord's sake. Like, <laughs> people will will do whole 30s and join CrossFit gyms and, you know, climb Mount Everest. Like, people aren't afraid of commitments. They're afraid of commitments they don't understand. Mm. They're afraid of, like, why would I give give myself to something so big when I don't understand what the end result is? And so I actually think the church has overreacted, shocker, in some of these areas, to where we've oversimplified and we've relied on quote unquote organic means of discipleship. Mm -hmm. And I'm all for organic discipleship 
as long as it's tied to structured environments. So one of the things we found in the Institute was if you get people around uh, a a table once a week for 30 weeks in a row, talking about the Bible or theology, like like tonight, I'm teaching in the Storyland Institute on Genesis chapter three, original sin, total depravity, Augustine and Pelagius. And the people that are in the room are, I mean, they're 78 year old grandmas. Like that's who wants to come hear about Augustine and the Augustinian Pelagian controversies. But do you know what happens coming out of that? They start talking about their own sin or suffering and like the organic stuff happens outside of class because they now have content to talk about and what we've done this is if i don't think i said it this way in the book maybe i didn't even have this conviction then but what i would say is that most evangelical churches have created or or they've uh, defined discipleship as synonymous with community and it's not mm-hmm. yeah just because you're in community does not mean you're being discipled. And that's been our biggest goal for the last 15 years in evangelicalism. Are you like, we'll, we'll ask, are you in a home group? Are you in a small group? Are you in community? As if that's our job, that's not our job. I don't know what's going on in that community. For all I know, we might just be pooling ignorance. Right. And so it's important for us to make sure that those, those environments have some structure and predictability to them that are centered around the person and work of Jesus, believing that organic things flow from that. I probably just like, alienated three quarters of your listeners. <laughs> well, well, JT, then just, just to sort of add a practical edge to that, what is, what is a small group or a community group look like at village or at storyline or, or, or where you might lead it? Yeah, so we we basically said, um, gosh, this isn't my quote, it's somebody else's, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher it too, but it's, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I actually think I got that right. So and, what we real, so. and what we realized is, is not everything's a nail. But there are nails, and people do need to be in community. So we had a robust home group ministry, but we wanted to tell our home groups the primary uh, outcome from a home group is community, not learning. Of course, are there going to be things that you learn? Of course. Are, there, are you going to talk about the Bible? Of course. But it's primarily hot Christian hospitality, community, caring for one another. And then we created these separate environments that were classes, the institute, our residency program, where, of course, community was happening also, but the primary outcome was learning. And those were our structured and predictable environments. So for a young couple that doesn't have kids yet, and maybe they just got married and they joined the village church, I mean, the best thing they can do is probably join a home group because they need to be known and they need to know others. And, but I'll tell you this, like we loved home groups until we had kids. Like as soon as we started having kids like, and we hosted a home group, I was like, just trying to, I was just trying to avoid insurance claims yeah. at my house, you know, from like kids jumping off my roof or something like, like, yeah. like it was like order pizza, pray to God that something terrible doesn't happen of like a kid, like running through a window or something like that. And that, cause like, I think at one point we had, we were outnumbered. We had like yep. 17 adults and 24 kids. And it's like, I'm, I'm sorry. I I'm ungodly right now. I can't <laughs> disciple anybody, you know? Okay. Uh, but if you can offer childcare, like think about, um, can I get, this is Jen. This, so if you, if you guys get mad at me about this, it's Jen's fault. Okay. She told me to say, she told me this. Yeah. Uh, she believes and has taught publicly. So therefore I'm not like outing her right now. Uh, home groups have a gender bias insofar as they, they limit female participation, specifically female participation, like moms who have kids, because they're the ones who typically both are doing all the hosting, perhaps doing the childcare. If, little Timothy in the room next door, you know, starts hitting Jonathan. It's typically, not always, typically like the, the norm would be the mom getting up, which means the guys kind of get to have community and community is harder for guys. So we think we're doing something really good there. But the reality is, is the, mo- the moms are having a harder time to participate. 
But if you offer, and this is what we're experiencing at the Institute uh, here in our men's and women's Bible studies, our, our women's Bible study has quadrupled in numbers since we offered childcare. Because we're offering a structured and predictable approach with accessible on-ramps for people where home group is super, super tough. That's great. That's great. Now, the last quarter of your of your audience is now. <laughs> no, we've alienated. Well, well, I'm sorry. I'm going to send you guys a check. That's that's, that, that, that's totally fine. We already established you're our one listener, so it's yeah. totally it's it's, it's, it's you totally agree cool. with everything this guy's saying. I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You're out of here. You've alienated yourself, is what you're saying. I'm not even yeah. sure I like this stuff. Yeah. actually going back to what you were talking about earlier with you know looking looking for someone to disciple you and and now these days you're just looking for someone to come to you and say tell me more about the bible uh yeah. in, in a world that you know many people have defined as uh sort of swimming in this expressive individualism this you do you movement kind of thing yeah. how do you sell this idea or how do you invite people into what you call this this discipleship as as an apprenticeship of self-denial how do you get them there? Mm. Yeah. In, in that part of the book, I was just trying to highlight like, hmm, trying to think of the best way to take this. We, we have often in discipleship circles and in the church, we're just 15 years behind what the culture is saying. So, so much of what this, what is going on with discipleship right now is actually around identity. And that's actually the same type of identity worldview frameworks that are happening in the world. And so the end of life is me self-actualizing through God or something like that. And of course, as Calvin, we, I believe what Calvin says that there's two parts of wisdom, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Knowledge of self is important, but that knowledge of self, he, he then goes on to define both as being an image bearer, but also a sinful image bearer and, and knowing those two parts of ourselves well. But like one of the things I'll ask my congregation recently, you guys know what the Enneagram is, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know the Enneagram. Yeah, Todd's uh, really big. Again, Enneagram. I was, you know, I, I've I have heard of it. He's all, he's all the numbers <laughs> that, in Enneagram. That, so Todd and I would probably be friends right now. But but like last night I was at CCU and I was asking these students, um, "Do you guys know what the Enneagram is?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, we love." And they just you know start listing off all their wings and subtypes <laughs> and proclivities and all stuff. And I was like, "I said this is not. I'm not trying to shame you. This, this is just a question. How many of you know the attributes of God?" silence and these are these are christians who believe discipleship is an in and part of it is an internal journey into a greater self-awareness of who god is because god loves our actual selves not the false self that we put forward not the you know not the not the self that the world sees but actually ourselves and that's really important to know that god loves us like actually the person jt todd ryan but it's the God, it's the God of the creator of the world, the God of the Bible that does that. And we are called to know and grow in him. And so if we make discipleship a pathway to self-actualization, not self-denial the way Jesus calls it, we're asking people to take up the throne of their lives, not the cross of Christ. I was I was talking to my wife about this about this book, and she said, Well, what's like the main thing? And I said, you know, I think this this like um not really a, a bifurcation between community and learning, but I think I think that's a, I, a a, a message that that needs to be announced that the, the, the churches need to think through this um, and and like you said you, you you can't check the learning box just by getting people involved in small groups That's um, right. but uh, and, and and maybe I just answered the question I'm going to ask you but what is the one question that everyone asks you about this book 
Um, what kind of pushback have you received? The biggest question I get from this book is, uh, or it's usually a comment and then a question. This only worked because you were at the village church. You had infinite amount of resources. You had a staff yourself. I'm a bivocational pastor in Wichita, Kansas. Can I really do this? Yeah, yeah. With a church of like 100 or 75 or something yeah, like that. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, maybe yeah. for no money. You know? Maybe for yeah, can, yeah. can, can I do this? And so uh, what I tried to advocate for in the book was not, hey, here's the playbook that you should run. You should build an institute. That's not what I think should every church should do. It is, it is, it is definitely not a silver bullet. We're building it here slightly differently than we did at the village because I'm at a different church that's asking different questions and has a different history. And so I'm having to be sensitive culturally to who we are to make sure that I build it appropriately for our church. So the book is really a sequence of questions that I would encourage ministry practitioners to ask. But to get to that specific question, can I do this? I think the answer is absolutely yes. This is scalable to any context. So let's just say, hypothetically, you're a bivocational pastor of of a church of 40 people in Wichita, Kansas, and you're wondering, how in the world can I start an institute? I'm a mechanic on the side. I've got three kids, and I, you know, I'm just trying. I'm just doing my best to to get a sermon ready for Sunday, let alone do this whole other thing. I, I would just encourage you to think about think about your church. Let's say it's 40 people. Give those people your sermon and, 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 and trust that God is going to use the proclamation of your word to vivify his church, to build his church, to encourage his church, to, to convict his church. But then there needs to be a group of people that that you begin giving a little bit more of yourself to. And it might just be one coffee a, a month that you're going to read a book together. It might just be, you know, we're going to read a chapter of a, of a, of a classical Christian text or, or even something new, like there, you can't give yourself, I'm learning this as a pastor, you can't give all of yourself to everybody. And this is the, this is what we see in Jesus's life. He has the crowds of 5,000. He has the 70, he has the 12, he has the three, he has the one. So I think there's a, there's a sense of wisdom there. And of course, I'm not saying do it exactly like that. I'm not sure that's a, 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 a prescriptive thing. It could be, but I do think it's descriptive in the sense, prescriptive and descriptive in the sense of you should have people that are closer into your life that you're giving more to, and then people in your life that you're not giving all of yourself to. So at, at Storyline, there are 89 people in the Storyline Institute. I'm the primary teacher. It's 28 weeks long. I'm teaching 25 of the weeks, and Jonathan Pennington, Barry Jones, several other teachers, or Kyle Worley's going to come up and teach. But uh, they also have cohort leaders that they're in. And I'm also then giving myself to the proclamation of God's word on Sundays. And that's basically all I do. Cause I, I can't, I can't do that for everybody. If you want to get the best, the best that I have to offer theologically, I can't go meet you for coffee. I need you to come to the Institute because that's where I'm able to do it. So whatever question a pastor would answer, I would just say, find one way to find your highest level leaders who can reproduce themselves and give them the best of what you have. And that can't just be on Sunday mornings. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the question uh, every everybody's asking you, or or the most asked question. What's the question you wish everybody would ask you about this book? Um, Where can I get more? How can I purchase yeah, more? I think so. <laughs> why, why wouldn't I, Why wouldn't I do this? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, why wouldn't I do this? Because here's the thing. I think at some point we're going to have to. We're going to ha- churches are going to have to become frustrated with the status quo. And that's not me trying to criticize the church. I love the local church, but like as, as a relative newcomer to evangelicalism and life in the local church and pastoring, like we're, 
we're not producing what we say we're producing. We are over-promising and under-delivering. What do we need to change? I think this would be a good time to take a break. Yeah, that's great. And we will come back and we'll ask a question from the food trucks. Hi, this is Todd Miles. Uh, when I'm not co-hosting Food Trucks in Babylon with Ryan Lister, I also direct the Master of Theology program at Western Seminary. I wanted to tell you just a little bit about it. The purpose of the THM program is to raise up and train Christian scholars for service in the church. The THM program also serves as a bridge to PhD studies. We have set it up to give students an experience that's much like an American-style PhD program. It won't be quite as rigorous, but you'll feel real at home. Nothing will be dissimilar. For those of you who don't want to do a PhD, it's still a great experience to, to write an academic thesis, to, uh, to defend it, to do oral exams, participate in colloquium with the faculty. The reason why a lot of students do the THM is, is to fill in some of the gaps, some, some areas that they feel were maybe just a bit lacking or they weren't able to give the attention that they wanted to give it when they were doing their master's uh, training. If you have questions about the THM program, please visit the website at westernseminary.edu or feel free to shoot me an email at tmiles@westernseminary.edu. I'd love to talk to you about what it would look like to pursue a Master of Theology at Western Seminary. Well, we're back with JT English and a question from the food trucks. Uh, you, you say in your book that Christian doctrine, it, it does not divide, it unites, it doesn't harm, it heals. It reorients us in a disorienting world. Uh, but, but the question would be coming from the world, well, that's exactly what Christian doctrine does. It divides <laughs> right. and it harms and it, and it hurts. Uh, yeah. And so what would you say? Yeah. In some sense, uh, I think both it, it, wildly, I don't think there's post postmodernity coming out of me. Both are true. I mean, our experience sometimes of doctrine is that it's deeply painful and that it does and can cause suffering. But that's when doctrine is used is used uh, improperly to to be wielded as a sword to harm people. The reality is, is it does divide between falsehood and truth. It does divide between error and what is good and right, true, good and beautiful. So when I say that it doesn't divide, one of the things I was trying to do, because I know the person who's going to be reading this is not that person, uh, most likely the the the, the secular, uh, maybe non-believing post-Christian person is not reading whole deep discipleship, how the church can make whole disciples. It's probably pastors, ministry practitioners, who have one or one of I would say are usually on one of two ends of a spectrum. Either are so afraid of doctrine that. Uh, because they have been hurt by it. So I was trying to kind of invite them back into seeing doctrine as beautiful because it's it does orient us to who God is, who we are, and what God's doing in the world. Or the other end of the spectrum is the person that doesn't understand theological triage and has been using third, fourth, fifth tier issues to actually hurt and harm other people. Uh, that, that wasn't happening at the village, but I can tell you one example of theological triage where we were having a problem. Uh, when I first got there, I was doing our membership course and um, we had like a two-week class and like some kind of a like a booklet that you had to walk through. And there was one bullet point on Trinitarianism. And it was simply, we believe that God is triune. And then we had four pages on complementarianism. And we were running the real with real bleh, real risk of having complementarian Unitarians. I would far rather have Trinitarian egalitarians 
that I'm in fellowship with than a complementarian unitarian. And I'm a complementarian. Um, but but I, I think that you if you're if you're trumpeting complementarianism to the extent and to the degree that you're more willing to divide over it than you are Trinitarianism, then you are using it unintentionally to divide. And so Gavin Ortland has done some great work in this stuff. I know that you guys are probably aware of that. So what I was trying to say is when we unite over the first, second, and third tier issues and, and things that are distinctively Christian, which the church is going to increasingly have to learn how to do in an increasingly secular and postmodern age, then I think we are going to find that that doctrine is beautiful. It does unite and it does bring healing. Well, now we want to sort of dive into, uh, you know, pastor theologian ideas, um, and and also just your again your your pastoral experience. You you sit at sort of this crossroads, which is really really unique coming out of the academy, being in the church, bringing, you know, academy-type ideas into the church, but also not not wanting those to be, uh, you know, juxtaposed, but to show how they can actually mesh together. Um, One thing I am am interested in is just going back to the biography, uh, is asking you, what's it like changing a job (laughs) in a pandemic? And do you have any advice? Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Avoid no it completely. Better advice. Like, I, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I'm here. We made it, I think, to the other side. I, I mean, I really think I aged 20 years mm. in like the period of six weeks. It was so unbelievably hard. And it was hard for two cases. Like, it was hard for two in two ways. I had to say goodbye to a church that I deeply loved mm-hmm. without saying goodbye to them. I preached my last sermon to the village church on a, to a camera. Yeah with three people in the room. Mm. They did a parade of like a thousand cars by our house. Wow. And that was when we didn't know how the virus spread. Like yeah. we didn't know, is this on like Amazon boxes? Is this like, yeah. you know, we just didn't know. And so I, uh, we had to like stand 20 feet away and just wave at people who like were fa- like family to us. Mm. And that you just don't unlive those kinds of emotions. Have you gone back? And the same thing was true here. I had to pastor a church that through really hard things that didn't know me. And I never got to say hello to and have your first Sunday. You know, it was just mm. my, the first time I saw people from storyline, we did some, something called dinner and a sermon. We ordered Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is a theme yeah, in my life. I'm is, beginning to realize we're going to see if they can sponsor the podcast. <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe. And they, we had 50 people in the room and that was just hard. Mm-hmm. It was just really hard. Have you been back to Village? Uh, I went back to do a funeral. Uh, we, uh, some of our best friends lost a little girl, mm. and they asked me to come back and do the funeral. So that was, uh, again, tough. But uh, this was a really sweet thing. So Matt Matt is one of my closest ministry friends, and so he came up three weeks ago and preached an installation. Yeah. We, re- we replanned this installation service yeah. three times because wow. they were telling us, it's just 14 days to break the spread. Yeah. So we were like, well, great, let's do it in June, you know, <laughs> and that got pushed back. So he and about 30 people from the village all drove up here together, the caravan, and we had a really fun celebration. We had dinner at our house, and it was really sweet.
What, what's the what's the hardest lesson? This is going back to your time at Village, and and even what's happening now at Storyline. What's the hardest lesson you learned during that transition into bringing this type of discipleship into the local church? I think one of the hardest things to learn was operating under the assumption that everybody's everybody's making decisions based upon the same set of facts and the same worldview and not also out of some deep sense of hurt. Mm. You know, I would get frustrated with a member with something I put, they posted online or they'd get frustrated with something I posted online. And then you realize beneath all of that is actually some real soul pain or mm. suffering or long. Like, and so I think that's one of the lessons that God's just teaching me as a person and as a pastor, every, I mean, this is REM, everybody hurts, you know, like <laughs> there is just actual pain in the world. Everybody's fighting a battle. Maybe it's invisible and people don't know about it. And so I think just, just trying to learn how to be a patient pastor, humble, kind, gentle, uh, even when I don't want to be, when I feel maybe backed into a corner or falsely maligned or attacked, like, are they doing this because of some kind of defensive capital T truth, or are they doing this because they're deeply, deeply wounded and hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, shame people, shame people, and trying to help people walk through that. You mentioned reading Augustine, Edwards, any advice for people who are who are interested in, in doing something like this, even if just with with one person? How do you keep that out of the ivory tower and and more outward focused, ready for the marketplace? Yeah, in my experience, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis has the introduction to Athanasius is on the incarnation. Uh, I think you can actually just if somebody wants to read that, they can just read it online. And one of the things that Lewis argues for is is Christians reading primary sources because they're often far more accessible than the secondary sources that are attempting to explain them. And so just I think my first plea to listeners would be is 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 is, is there is a rich tradition of Christian theology that is ready uh, for your exploration. And it is far, far, far less intimidating than you think it is. As soon as you find yourself reading Athanasius uh, or Irenaeus or Augustine, all of a sudden, once you begin to learn the way they're using language, it's far more poetic than anything you've read and far more understandable and applicable than you think that it would be. So sometimes I just want to reject the ivory tower idea because Augustine was not living in any ivory tower, as no. you know, his biography. No, he was a pastor. He was living yeah. in the throes of ministry as a pastor and mm-hmm. pastoring his people and ministering to them. And you, when you begin reading, for example, his sermons on John, or you read uh, City of God, you realize this is a guy who's 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 suffered in the world, who's acquainted with grief. He and and he's not. I think we same with Irenaeus. I mean, these are these are men who are pastoring people. And so I just would say, jump in, pick pick one church father or reformer who was in ministry, who was a pastor, and just start reading them. I think you're going to find them far more accessible than you realize. That's been my experience. I mean, how, how would you describe a pastor theologian, and why does the church need a pastor theologian? Do they do they need pastor theologians more than pastor counselors or pastor therapists or pastoral empaths? What's a pastoral theologian, and why does the church need them? Yeah, uh, a pastor theologian is someone who takes up the pastoral responsibility in an ecclesial context, like a like a local church, and understands their vocation primarily to be to give a theological vision for God's people about who God is, 
what God is doing, who we are, and how we can be participants in that story. I can't think of something that's more needed in the context of the local church. Uh, we certainly need therapists. We certainly need missions pastors. We certainly need care advocates. We need all of those things. These things are not in dichotomy. What we need less of is pragmatists. We need less people who just think, well, it's worked or it might work. And we need people who say, we want to do this because it's true, regardless of the outcome. I mean, historically, these weren't bifurcated. These weren't up two, right. two different things. Why are, why are they two different things now, pastors, theologians? Oh, man, I think that's a complex answer as you look at specifically the history of, of evangelicalism in Europe and in America. But it's largely because I think we some people started valuing the life of the mind over the life of the soul and the body, and some the life of the soul and the body over the life of the mind. And pastor theologians refuse to disintegrate those two things. Uh, Jesus calls us, when Jesus calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's not breaking us up into quadrants. He's, he's saying you're a whole person, and you have to love God with your whole self. And that's that's ultimately, I think, the aim of pastor theologians. And we see theology, theology, like in some contexts, is a terrifying word for some people. And we need to define it simply as these are words about God. This is These are the words that that tell us who our creator is, who our redeemer is, who our sustainer is. And the real, so one of the ways that I'll teach this in the in like the institute environment or when I teach in seminary classes is I tell them, I try to kind of pit theology and practicality because that's the way people typically pit these two things against each other. And I'll say, if theology is accurately defined as words about God, tell me one thing more practical and I'll go do that. I mean, I think we have a lot of pastors out there saying, I'm isolated. Uh, I mean, I had the academy. I did the seminary stuff. Um, I, I feel like I'm on an island. So where do I go? Yeah, um, you have to do it in community. If you're isolated, find community. That might be a like-minded pastor in your community. So here in Arvada, we have seven pastors who, I mean, one of us is kind of a, he's at, he's at, he's at a church that's a bit, not a bit, quite a bit more charismatic. We've got another guy that's at the vineyard, which is even less charismatic than that guy. We've got another guy that's at a, a covenant, covenantal church. But broadly, we're all in agreement. We're all seeking to reach this this city and this this place. And so we get together once a month to pray for one another, care for one another. I can't tell you what other past, like, and I believe those guys have my best interests at heart. And, and if you don't have that in your community, I would encourage you, start it. Get to, get, get to know the pastor down the street and just take him up to breakfast and coffee. And don't ask him about his church. Ask him about his family. Ask him how, how he's doing. Don't ask him like, hey, what's how, how's your attendance? How's your budget doing? Just like see him as a person first. And he'll begin to see you as a person too. So pastors who want deep discipleship, you have to do it in the context of community. And you have to find a place where you can be vulnerable, uh, whether that's your family, that pastoral group. I've been fortunate enough to have great, I had great friends through seminary. I've got a text thread with three buddies who, uh, I mean, we've been on this text thread for 12 years. We text probably 10 times a day. Uh, I haven't seen some of these guys in three years. It's just, it's just like we've maintained friendship and maybe, maybe you lost contact with some of those pastor friends. It's been 10, 15 years for you for seminary. Maybe it's time to rekindle that and reach out and have a phone call or get a zoom call set up and just say, Hey, I really appreciated you are in school and, and you're still in ministry. Can we, can we do this one th- once a month and encourage and pray for one another? That's great. That's really helpful. How has the transition to full-time pastor affected um, your marriage and your relationship with your children? 
Man, that's a that's a great question. Um, first thing I would say is being a lead pastor is way harder than what I did at the village. <laughs> I thought what I was doing at the village was hard. Uh, I had some armchair quarterback comments from Matt every now and then, and all of a sudden you're doing it. And it's like, oh man, this is tough. Uh, so I need a lot more grace than I thought I did. It's just it's a hard job. I love it. I don't want to do anything else, but it's hard. Specifically with my kids, I honestly, this is again me probably just being a little vulnerable. One of my greatest fears is that they'll have an identity of being a pastor's kid. Yeah. I really don't want that for them. Mm. Like when they, I, I go back to our storyline, we call it storyline kids. I go back there and tell our leaders and volunteers regularly, this is Thomas. He's not JT's son mm-hmm. when he comes back here. Mm-hmm. He's just a kid. Don't expect more of him. Don't expect less. Mm. This is Bailey. He, she's not J, you know, pastor JT's daughter. Don't treat her differently. Don't treat her better. Don't treat her worse. She's, she's four. She did not decide this for her life. <laughs> let her be, let her be her. Uh, and so, uh, so I think I'm just real tender to that right now and sensitive to that of just having a fear of, are they, are they going to see me differently because I'm a pastor? Are they going to be seen differently because I'm a pastor? And how do I, how do I get in front of that as best as I can before they're increasingly aware of it as yeah. a 12 year old or a 16 year old or a 20 year old? Um, I also just, I try to be, I think the best thing I can give my kids is not theology, despite the fact that I just said it's the best thing in the world. It's not Bible lessons. It's my presence. And so when I, when I'm home, I'm home. Uh, I try to be like, I I try to coach my kids' teams. I try to be a part of their lives. Like I give my son a enormous hug every single morning, look him in the eye and say, buddy, I am so glad to see you today. You know, and I I would just, because here's the thing, if you're pastoring your ministry, it kind of never ends. Like you're, you're never done with dealing with people's needs and hurts and pains. The sermon's never quite finished. And as soon as it is, just means you just gave it, it, you got another one coming in seven days. Mm-hmm. I heard someone say recently, um, being a lead pastor or a teaching pastor is like giving birth every Sunday only to realize you're pregnant again on Monday. You know, <laughs> it's just this constant delivery cycle, which can mean we become workaholics yeah. and we begin seeing ourselves as people. And so if you've got kiddos, spouse, like, look them in the eye, tell them that, you know, that they make sacrifices that maybe they didn't sign up for and be present with them. Leave the phone at home. When you go out to dinner with your kids, uh, you know, turn, turn the computer off when they're there and to be present. That's good. What's the one book of scripture you feel you need to wait before you preach? Man, I thought <laughs> such a funny answer. Uh, Two, two months ago, I would have said Romans only to find out I am preaching Romans for the next two years. Like I decided to do it because that's what we're doing for knowing faith. Uh, if it was a different uh, answering today, I would say Isaiah. Why is that? Why is that? Super long. Okay. <laughs> Super long. Um, just the complexities of it. I think I, I obviously preach. I, preaching through Paul's letters is so much easier. How do you preach through a 66 prophetic, 66 chapter prophetic book I don't I'm not that good of a preacher I need to be a better preacher before I do that so your book uh, deep discipleship how the church can make whole disciples of Jesus helpful work filled with a, a lot of very good wisdom practical advice what's the one first step someone can take so like someone said boy I I've been bifurcating. I've been thinking that, uh, and by bifurcating, I mean the uh, fellowship and learning, throwing it all into the small group. Uh, you've convinced me, th- th- this incredible podcast has convinced me. What, 
What's the one first step that, that, that someone can take to, to implement in their, their local church? Is it, is it just as simple as going to someone and saying, hey, do you want to grab a copy and, le- and, and let's read a book together, like you mentioned earlier, or is, there, or is there something else? I think a lot of this depends upon the context of the person. Again, there's not a silver bullet. And I'm going to give two quick answers. The first is pray. Only God can build disciples in the context of his church. And the more that you're on your knees begging him to do it, uh, I think that's that's going to increase the likelihood it happens. It's also gonna, going to tenderize your heart towards it as well continually. This is not, we don't have ministry playbooks. You know, the, John chapter three, the Holy Spirit blows where he wants to blow. We don't know where he's come from. We don't know where he's going. And we just we just set our sails up in trusting that he'll blow on our congregation and our churches. And so I have to ask him to do it. Uh, the last thing, last thing I'll say, maybe more practically, is I would ask your people what they want. Like rather than just saying, hey, here's what I want to do, ask them. Like if you've got a bigger church, maybe it's sending out a survey. How can I better serve you as a pastor? What would, if we were offering a class, what would you want to learn? If we were going to have some kind of a year-long program, what would be the things that you'd want us to think about and consider? That doesn't mean you have to do exactly what they say. You're going to have to receive lots of feedback and be a good interpreter of that. But odds are your people haven't been asked that question in a while. They kind of see you as the person who decides what's best for ministry. And when you ask them, you're probably going to find out they say, would you teach us the Bible more? Can we have a place where we can learn theology? I think that's probably going to happen. So what about for the person who is not a pastor? They're mm. a congregant, and they're, they've read your book, and, and it, it strikes a chord in them. They're like, I, I, I would love this sort of thing. Uh, yeah. how, what can they do? Uh, Ironically, how do they approach this, the pastor? Ironically, I get this question more than I get the pe- question from pastors. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of non-ministry staff have read the book, and they, they are saying, this is exactly what I want. How do I tell my pastor? I get that feedback. 10 to 1 from the, the pastor question, which is pastors, listen to that. Your people really do want this and they're asking for it. I would encourage you if you are a, maybe a lay leader at your church, a deacon, or you're involved and you've got the pastor's ear, approach him in such a way where he doesn't feel criticized about what he's currently doing. I promise you he's doing the best that he can. He might have some blind spots, things that he isn't understanding. And, and maybe you just need to approach him and say, hey, can you can you think about offering this uh, this class or, or this, whatever, like if he receives your feedback as criticism, uh, it likely isn't going to go well, but if he receives your feedback as, as helpful advice and Hey, here's, I would like this and I'd like you to do it. Can you help me? I think you have a far greater chance of him doing it. Great. Well, JT, it's been a ton of fun. I wish we had more time. We, uh, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, we love what you're, you're doing at Storyline. We love this book. Are, are there any other projects that, that you're working on right now? I am actually. Jen Wilkin and I are writing an introduction to theology at like a trying to write it like at a high school level. Nice. So basically taking some of the training program stuff we did and it's just the basics of the faith. Who is God? What is he like? What has he done? Just kind of a I mean, here's the reality. There the, the intros to systematic theology are four hundred pages. I've got, <laughs> I mean, you guys know Greg Allison, his yeah. introduction to historical theology has nine hundred footnotes per chapter. Uh, <laughs> and I keep telling these guys, hey, those are good books. I promise you nobody in my church is reading them. Yeah. <laughs> and so we we really wanted to find a way to to make uh rich Christian theology accessible to folks who find those books intimidating. Uh, that should be coming out, hopefully, in the next 18 months or so. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. That's great to hear, even as we think about what discipleship is uh, in the church, another resource that could be very, very, very helpful for that. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and um, yeah, we're really excited about what, what's happening in Colorado with you, and we're really excited about 
um, yeah, what these kind of discussions can do for for building up God's kingdom uh, here uh, in Portland, uh, also in Colorado, but for all our listeners. So thanks again. It's been my honor, guys. Thank you so much for the honor of having me and blessings to you, this podcast and your ministries. Mm-hmm.